Longtime listeners know that I meditate regularly. Now it's 25 minutes every other day. I started in 2007, and my start was a 10-day Vipassana retreat. No talking, no reading, no writing for 10 days. That was my first meditation at all. And I've done since then a few more 10 days, some five days, some three days. Mostly when I practice, now it's just sitting in my apartment in the morning usually. I mostly pay attention to my breath or do body scans for people who know what that means. I don't usually do guided meditations, but I listen to the Sam Harris podcast. So I joined his Waking Up app, and his Waking Up app is a lot on meditation and mindfulness. By now, I've listened to nearly all the recordings in it, and it's a lot. So that includes guided meditations, his conversations with his guests on theory, on practice. The guests themselves have many recordings which are either individual episodes or series. So I've gone through almost everything now. And I love many parts and I find them useful. But I find it difficult following some things he says. And no matter how many times he says them, no matter how common they are in meditation circles, terms like even mindfulness, non-dual, to me they sound vague. Phrases like thoughts arise and pass away or identifying with the thought, they sound to me mystical despite his saying that we have no free will, which I agree with, that to say they arise and pass away sounds like vague, sounds mystical. If our minds are mechanistic, why be so vague? It's nice to know anger will pass, but what's the mechanism? Why will it pass? How will it pass? He talks about the nature of mind. So that implies that there's something regular, there's something mechanistic, not mechanistic, but there's something that happens in, in your mind that's regular and predictable. So I want to explain that. So I decided to explain a bunch of these parts that I found vague. For those of my listeners who meditate, I think meditation is critically important, and you'll see how I connect it with nature a lot too. So I'm trying to explain things that I found confusing in the way that I would have found useful years ago. Now, everyone's different, so I can't say what is useful or would have been useful for me will be useful for you, but I think so. I suspect many of his listeners, and I don't know if any of them will listen to this, but I hope they do. I suspect they're analytical in a way that I am, geeky, and that they would benefit from less vagueness. I hope that my explanations ease your practice and their practice, though nothing substitutes for the actual practice. Hearing about it is not the same as actually doing it. I'm going to start with an example from life, and this is to explain mindfulness and some of the top-level concepts. A couple of weeks ago, I was riding my bike upstate New York on a road I thought I'd never been on before. As far as I knew, I was riding in new territory I'd never been before. And suddenly I noticed to my left, the field that I was passing, I'd been in it before. The summer before, almost exactly a year before, my then-girlfriend and I had hiked through that very field. How did I know? I noticed when we were on that field, I noticed an apple tree on that hike. We ended up picking some ripe apples from it and ate them, and they are delicious. I'd only been there once. I didn't try to commit it to memory. And the odds of me passing by on a random bike ride, a place that I'd been before, were so low, there's no way I would be looking out to expect a pass I'd been in before. But seeing it, I couldn't help but connect it. So on this ride, I got off my bike and I walked through the field to find the apple tree. And while looking, I was also thinking of my ex-girlfriend. So what happened? A year ago, my mind connected the patterns of the field, what it looked like, all the, everything about it, all the sensory parts about it, with the reward of that apple and with the reward of bonding with someone I cared about. And it stored those memories in my memory. I believe it's, you know, this is me speculating, but that our ancestors our minds, from, this is from long before human, probably long before mammal, have been doing this. They've been storing memories of what it's like when there's something we should repeat. The patterns like, that was good food, or that was a good relationship, they got brought up when I was in a situation that reminded me of it. There's some pattern matching part of me, 
And when it sees, oh, that field, there's food around here or there's a relationship around here, it like popped those thoughts up into my mind. It wasn't random. And likewise, it could have been a pattern like burned hand on stove would lead me to think of, you know, don't go near the stove when the fire's on or stub toe walking in the dark. That would lead me to walk slower when I go to the bathroom at night. That is when something prompts some part of my mind that matches the pattern to the memory, it gives me thoughts relevant to that memory. I think hopefully that's safe for people to get why parts of my mind work that particular way. Now let's look at it from a different view. There are some cells in my body that create fingernails. There are some parts of my body that create hair. No matter how many times I shave or clip my nails, they just keep producing fingernails. They just keep producing hair. I don't ask them to. I don't decide to. I couldn't stop them if I tried. Those cells just produce what they produce. Like those cells producing what they produce, in my mind are parts that produce thoughts, emotions, and motivations. My senses and my existing thoughts are constantly producing new input and unique combinations. And when that input matches some stored pattern, those pattern matching cells in your brain and in my brain prompt thoughts, emotions, and motivations relative to, relevant to that input. They may not seem relevant to the rest of you, so you might not, it might just seem like they're rising, but they're always coming because of those patterns matching. So thoughts and emotions may seem random, but if you look carefully, you'll see that many of them are prompted by input from senses and other thoughts. Actually, I suspect all our thoughts come from something in your sensory input combined with other stuff going on inside your mind, reach some pattern matching part of the mind that if that pattern of your input matches some memory, it gives you a thought or emotion or an emotion or an emotion. So now you have a thought in your mind. Now, new thoughts and new emotions from new sensory input, your sensory input is constantly changing. And your other thoughts, these are constantly bringing in new things. So they will cause new emotions to come up and they will override or push out the old ones. And this, I believe, is the mechanism behind thoughts arising and passing away. It's not mystical or random. It's, roughly speaking, deterministic. Now, it's too complex to predict in practice because there's so much input, sensory input, and there's so many thoughts that are going on, many below your threshold of conscious awareness. But I think that the more that you look at your thoughts, and that's one of the big things about meditation, is I think you'll find thoughts less just arising and more responding to input to where you can see the cause. I'm not saying you should always look for the cause, but it's not arising and passing away. It's patterns are leading them to come up as they ought to. You want to, if you're going through a field and there's an apple tree around, you want your mind to lead you to go look for some apples. Well, historically, in our ancestral environment, and today too, because they were delicious apples. That's describing thoughts arising and passing away. I want to introduce mindfulness and a couple of related concepts and how to think of that. If you drive an internal combustion engine car with a standard transmission, you know that the engine runs all the time, even when the car isn't moving, it idles. If the gears between the engine and the wheels were permanently connected, when the wheels stopped, those gears would force the engine to stop and seize, and you'd have to restart it every time, which would break the engine pretty quickly. Instead, it has a clutch. The clutch, you operate with the pedal for your left foot, and it disconnects the engine from the wheels so that the engine can idle, ready to drive the car when you reconnect it, but the wheels can stop. An automatic transmission, by comparison, does not have a pedal for your left foot. Instead of a clutch, it has something called a torque converter. A torque converter automatically tries to connect the engine to the wheels, but it can disconnect. So if you put your foot on the brake, it kind of connects and disconnects without needing your foot on the clutch. It does it, but it, it takes away control. What happens is if you take your foot off the brake and your car is on level ground, in most cars, the torque converter is like kind of connecting and disconnecting, connecting, disconnecting. 
it will connect a bit and get the, the car will start moving even if you don't press on the gas because it, the engine is idling and the torque converter keeps kind of, kind of connecting. Eventually, it'll get the car moving and it'll reach some speed where it's moving roughly some combination of the idling speed of the engine slowed down by the wind resistance. But the faster the car goes, the more the torque converter just connects the gears until the car starts moving along. Let's go back to all those thoughts that your mind is creating. Like there's probably some apples around here. Look for that tree. They're like the engine in a car, that process of all these thoughts, emotions, and motivations. An untrained mind is like a car with an automatic transmission. Each thought tries to engage the wheels. Once the car starts moving, you have to pay attention to where you're going because you might hit someone or you might interact with someone, I should say. When the car is moving and you have to pay attention, that's like identifying with the thoughts. It's the thoughts start driving the car is the rest of your mind and body. Developing mindfulness is like developing a clutch so that you can disconnect the engine. That is, you can disconnect the thought-producing parts of your mind from the car that is the rest of your mind and body. You can have those thoughts happen, but not engage with them. It enables you to look at the engine running without the car moving and forcing you to drive. So a clutch gives you greater freedom when you want it and more control when you want it. Now, just knowing that you can develop that clutch, that is mindfulness, and the skills to use it, that is pay attention to your thoughts without them carrying you away, doesn't mean you have those skills. Like all skills, these skills come with practice. That's why practicing meditation gives you freedom and control. It's like a race car driver just developing clutch skills and learning more about the engine, which enables him or her to drive better. Some thoughts engage your mind very subtly. They're so subtle you don't notice that you caught up with them. Sometimes it's so fast that you can't tell that you got caught up with them. Or sometimes it's just a strong thought comes up that you're caught up with it before you can do anything about it. So these are harder to catch before you get swept up in them. So the more you practice, the more that you can handle subtle, fast, strong, other types of emotions that can, or, or thoughts that can get your car moving before you can engage the clutch. Still, no matter how long that you've meditated and how much skill you've developed, some thoughts will engage you no matter what. You can't really do anything about it. So when you notice yourself engaged in thoughts while meditating, what I do, I notice it and I return to my breath. That's what a lot of people do. That training is useful in life. Like if you get in an argument or lose your cool, you can choose to disengage the parts of your mind that are saying, get all hyped up. So that gives you that, that's that freedom. Now you don't have to engage the clutch. Sometimes you want to let the emotions engage without you paying attention. If you're riding a roller coaster or having sex, for example, you probably just prefer enjoying the ride, not thinking about it. By contrast, when you're stressed, if you're in an argument, it can be very useful to engage the clutch and look at the engine. Why is it making me sweat? Why is it making me focus so intently that I lose perspective? And things like that. So curiosity about the engine. When you're really stressed, one thing that often works for me is to be curious. Why is the engine working the way that it is? Why is my mind creating the thoughts that it is? And that curiosity can occupy my mind or yours and your body to a new, calmer direction. So that's one of the big values of mindfulness. Now, you might ask in this clutch torque converter analogy, who or what is the driver? At first, you might think it's something like your soul, your spirit. Sam likes big words sometimes, and so he uses the term humunculus, which just means a little person. A lot of people think that, that like the real me is inside my mind, inside my head, doing the mind stuff. But after you notice... Well, there's no driver that's controlling your hair growing or your nails growing or your liver doing whatever your liver does. It's just these cells do those things without any driver, without any intent, without any conscious whatever. 
So with mindfulness practice, that is, if you watch your mind enough, you'll start to realize that your thoughts and emotions happen without a driver too. You don't make them happen. It's that pattern matching that happens. You don't pick your thoughts, emotions, and motivations. The pattern matching, responding to sensory input, plus your other thoughts, prompt these thoughts, motivations, and, and, and emotions. Later, if you keep looking very carefully, you'll see that your choices also don't happen because of a driver. They happen in the engine. That is, they just happen on their own just as much as your nails and hair growing happen. You can see it happen. Your consciousness, you can be aware of it happening. But I think if you look more and more closely, you'll see that you, don't, you feel like you consciously choose things, but you don't. Something inside you unconsciously chooses things, which your consciousness then observes. After some part of your mind chooses, there's another part that creates the thought, ah, that's why I chose it that way. That's a really subtle one that you also feel like, oh, I intentionally thought that's why I chose that choice. But actually, I think you'll see that that thought also comes up automatically. Your consciousness didn't produce that afterthought either. It just observed it. That's what Sam means by the self is an illusion. I think of it more as my consciousness didn't even think the thought, I thought that. Even that thought, cells in my body created, as much as other cells create fingernails, which I didn't choose either, some cells in my body choose, I thought that. But I didn't think that. I just thought I thought that and was aware of that thought, if that makes sense. Increasingly, you see that there's no driver actively doing anything. It's simply observing. It turns out that the whole car runs on its own. Nothing requires a driver. Consciousness doesn't do anything. It just observes. It just sees things. Everything happens in the engine, that is, by cells and organs. All the driver does, all consciousness does, is observe the engine and car, that is, your mind and body, running on their own. You may know Jonathan Haidt, the author Jonathan Haidt's pair of analogies. He uses it, if I remember right, to illustrate emotions and intellect. He says that most people think of emotions as causing our behavior and intellect guiding it, sort of like a charioteer guiding horses. The horses run, pulling the chariot along, and the charioteer directs them. He says it's actually more like the rider on an elephant. So the comparison here is that elephants are smarter than horses, so the elephant chooses more. They don't just blindly go forward or left or right when, when pulled, but the elephant chooses things. And the elephant is much bigger, so it listens less to the rider. It does more on its own. So in his analogy, the rider kind of guides the elephant, and sometimes the elephant kind of goes where the intellect suggests, but mostly it goes on its own, and the rider thinks he or she is choosing, but more after the choice thinking, that's what I meant to do, and rationalizing a choice that he or she didn't make, just the elephant really did. Now, I suggest what happens in your mind is actually a step further from, if, you, if you can extrapolate from the horse analogy to the elephant analogy to here, the rider guides nothing. It just observes. It, it doesn't even rationalize. The rationalizing is also happening. I mean, the thought, that's what I meant to do. He thinks the rider thinks. Actually, the engine does. Consciousness observes that thought and gets carried away with it and thinks it thought that's what it meant to do. But actually, that's not the rider thinking that. So if you look closely, you can clutch and disengage from that thought too and just observe the thought, that's what I meant to do, and realize, as Sam would say, the self is an illusion. As I would say, it's all happening automatically. Hopefully that reveals consciousness. Consciousness is not doing anything. It's simply the awareness of those things. Nobody knows why or how it works or how it came into existence, since as far as anyone can tell, your body works fine without it. That's why it's so hard to tell if other things are conscious, because as far as we can tell, they work fine whether they're conscious or not. Nobody can measure anything about consciousness except 
you know your own in this mysterious way, something that you can't measure or show anybody else. What we entirely call subjective is in your personal experience, the only objective thing that exists, your awareness. You know that you exist because you can sense that. Everything else you can imagine, you can be fooled about. So what people call subjective is actually, in your personal experience, objective. So I want to explain another concept here. When you realize that all your thoughts occur automatically from the rest of the world influencing it through your sensory input, you may stop seeing your mind as separate from everything else. It's part of one big whole. That is, when something happens, your mind responds to it in a, I guess the right word would be mechanistic, regular way. And that's what I think Sam means by non-dual, that your mind isn't reacting to something separate so much as flowing with everything else. So I use the term harmony. It acts in harmony more than non-dual. And I think that reflects the influence on me from the Taoist book, The Tao Te Ching, which to me is a lot more about harmony, but that's a whole other story. So I hope that these analogies clarify these terms that for me, they sound vague otherwise. And I hope that these analogies and explanations make them less vague since every time he talks about mindfulness or identifying with your thoughts or non-dual this helps me understand them much better than any explanations I've heard from him. Analogies are not perfect, but they would have helped me if I had heard them earlier with my practice and would have gotten me started a lot earlier. Also, knowing, again, that you can have skills isn't having them any more than knowing that you can play the piano means that you can play the piano. Like all skills, you have to practice. And like all skills, the more that you practice, the greater your skills. And if you practice enough to reach a mastery level of these skills... With mastery comes facility, that is ease of use, freedom, self-awareness, and you start to be able to express yourself through these, so greater self-expression, and usually the ability to share what you've learned with others so they can share back with you, and that creates community and much greater potential for learning and understanding. During an Ask Me Anything, a listener asked Sam for advice since he or she couldn't stop breathing voluntarily when trying to pay attention to their breath. And I think Sam missed a great opportunity to help someone out of their confusion by giving them something to notice. So this would be something like in basketball, if someone dribbles poorly, you give them dribbling exercises so that they can improve their dribbling. It's kind of challenging because you have to work on what you're not skilled at, but that's how you develop the skills. In this case, if the person couldn't help breathing, if they couldn't help breathing, that wasn't voluntary. That's involuntary. But they perceived it as voluntary. They felt like they were choosing to breathe. So I would suggest looking more closely at what they perceive as a choice to breathe, but is not a choice because they can't help it. If that person looks more closely, I believe that they will see that they aren't consciously choosing to breathe, but rather they perceive the choice made, then perceive the thoughts that made it, and those thoughts also arose automatically for predictable reasons, which as you look more closely, or as this person looks more closely, I think that they'll see they weren't choosing, they thought that they were choosing, and that was a thought. And that's something for them to look at. It's hard to dribble left-handed if you're not good at it. But if you dribble left-handed until you get good at it, then you get good at it. And that's what I propose is if you're someone like that, if something seems voluntary that you can't help, that's a great access point to see how these things are automatic. Seeing that choice made and seeing the follow-up thoughts happening, that can reveal how all choices work and how feeling like you've chosen because of those follow-up thoughts, you can see how that process works. When you see it, you will feel liberation. When you see that it happens that way for everyone else, you'll develop compassion, empathy, patience, because it's all happening automatically with them too. And you'll also see how to lead others and how to lead yourself when you get more of how the mind works. I think it's worth repeating that learning that you can clutch 
and clutching when and how you want, or letting the engine and car cruise when you want, that creates incredible freedom when you want it and control when you want it. Sam points out how some meditation advocates, they point out results from the simple act of meditating. Maybe they'll cite results from research that it calms you or relaxes you or lowers your blood pressure or makes you feel more love and kindness. Those results are great, he points out, but the ability to observe your engine and improve how you use it, that is mindfulness, to be aware of how your mind creates the thoughts and to see the thoughts happening, but be able to clutch when you want and not get caught up with them or to get caught up with them if you're having really great sex and don't want to think about like, why is this great? But just enjoy it and get really into it. I mean, you probably want partners to be that way too. It gives you options to do what you want, not be caught up in driving or to choose how and when you drive when you want to drive. It gives you freedom. You don't get caught up by things you don't want to be like arguments, politicians trying to make you fearful or addictions telling you that you're powerless to change anything. Now, you may be thinking, if I can't control anything, if all I can do is observe, what difference does it make? You hearing these words, if they affect you, how they would affect me and how words that came to me before affected me, it will lead you to meditate differently, probably more and I hope more effectively. Now, that influence will happen outside your control. Outside, I mean, it will happen in the way that I've talked about, that your pattern matching in your mind will lead you to think things and feel things that will change your behavior It'll just now happen within your observation, or you'll see it happening. I'm doing my influence to you because of something that influenced me before. Did I have a choice in the matter? Can't say. Well, I don't think so. But it implies, this implies a chain of causation going back to, well, I don't know how everything got started. So consciousness and evolution seems to be guiding how these things happen, but maybe even cosmology before evolution. I mean, we don't know when consciousness began. Consciousness connects to evolution and to cosmology. It's hard to say how. Did consciousness observe from a lot of people, including myself, think that it emerged through enough complexity? Like you probably know an anthill, if you have a bunch of ants and a bunch of sand, if you have too few of them, they won't form an anthill. But if you get enough, at some point an anthill will form, or they will, an anthill will exist that emerged from a certain minimum level of complexity. Or was consciousness, consciousness already there? Is it, does it exist in all matter? And somehow in the brain, it forms our consciousness. Not only does nobody know how consciousness came to be or why consciousness came to be, but in my opinion, nobody has made any progress on answering that question at all, ever. We don't know anything meaningful more about that. We know a lot of things about the mind, but not how or why consciousness came to be. That question is the hard problem of consciousness, which Sam talks about sometimes. Mostly, I don't bother asking about it, but it comes up when paying attention to my consciousness or my thoughts during meditation. All I know is that I have consciousness. That's actually a pretty deep statement. All I know is I have consciousness. Putting this all in context, mindfulness that comes through meditation and other techniques is only part of what I consider a full gamut of personal leadership. Some low-level basics that hopefully you already know are the th- what I call the three pillars, a healthy diet, daily vigorous exercise, and the right amount of sleep for you every night. I consider the ability to create new beliefs as important. Creating new beliefs... It seems mystical until you get it. Then it seems essential and you start to feel compassion or even pity for those who don't get it, how to create new beliefs, how to create new lenses through which you see the world. A lot of people think, well, just the way I see it, that's the way it is. You can change these things and it changes your life tremendously. You can learn to create new beliefs for how you see the world. Sam calls it framing, but I haven't heard him develop it nearly as much as he could. As best I can tell, I don't think he can see that you can learn to practice it as easily and accurately as you can any other skill. 
kind of got into it when we talked about stoicism, but not just up, outright, you can create new beliefs. My leadership book, Leadership Step by Step, teaches it. I teach it when I coach people. I see it also as one of Viktor Frankl's main messages in the book, if you haven't read it, Man's Search for Meaning, one of the great books of all time, where his framing, his creating new beliefs, allowed him to experience love and bliss in Auschwitz, where he was imprisoned and tortured. He was just a regular human. If he can create beliefs that make Auschwitz something meaningful, then we can do it with our situations, which are likely less challenging. There are other parts of personal leadership as well. Actively practicing artistic expression, uh, to put yourself up on stage, to perform in front of others, to put yourself out there in arts, drama, or music, also in sports. I think this is very important to raise challenging emotional situations and to learn to handle them. That develops emotional skills and awareness. Now for a comic interlude and a drinking game for listening to Sam. All right, speaking of big words, if you like his using the word defenestrate, which he uses all the time, and hopefully you know that means like throw out the window, look up Calvin and Hobbes using the term. I consider the time that Bill Watterson, the guy who does uh, Calvin and Hobbes, the time that he used the word defenestration, I think is one of the best strips of one of the best comics. So I'm not here making you laugh, but if you look up, I found one image of it, and I'll link to that in my notes. But you gotta, you got to do some research to find the entire comic because it's a multi-page thing, and it's incredible. It's about the monster demonstrates defenestration. All right, here's the drinking game. I don't know about you, but outside of Sam's recordings, I rarely hear the phrase, in some sense. Like, in some sense, the mind does this, or in some sense, the mind does that. But I hear it in every episode, sometimes from him, sometimes from guests, usually a few times an episode, sometimes many, sometimes in variations, like in a very real sense, and so on. If you like the book Elements of Style by Strunk and White, you may recognize in some sense as a qualifier. It's like pretty or quite or pretty or somewhat, but for people who want to make themselves sound very smart. As you probably guessed, the drinking game is to drink when Sam or guest says in some sense. So if this recording counts, I said it twice. Maybe someday he'll bring me on as a guest and I might end up saying it, but I'll try to avoid it because I find it annoying. Just say what you mean without the qualifier. Now, of course, when you speak, you can't edit like you can when you write, but I recommend having a drink on hand and when someone says in some sense, have a drink. Also, now, if you're like me, you won't be able to miss people saying that. Since Sam often lists the environment as one of the top issues of our time, and I agree, and I work on sustainability leadership, I have to comment that on the environment, Sam deeply misunderstands systems and so thinks that things that will reduce pollution or increase Earth's ability to sustain life, he thinks things will do that that in practice will increase pollution or decrease Earth's ability to sustain life. He keeps citing Elon Musk as someone helping the environment. Elon Musk is today's Robert Moses. For those not familiar with the Cross Bronx Expressway or all the highways in and around New York City, Robert Moses was New York's city planner who kept building roads. He kept building a road to relieve congestion. And he thought that, okay, a new road will alleviate congestion on the old road. It would, for a bit, traffic would go down, but then people would adjust to it. What they call is it would induce demand and create more traffic, which led him to create more roads, which led to more traffic. And he didn't realize that new roads were inducing demand. This is a systemic effect. He didn't learn from it, and he didn't realize that what he thought he was achieving the opposite of his intent. He wanted less traffic, and he was creating more traffic. How does this relate to the environment and Elon Musk? It's a different systemic effect. But I'll start with James Watt. James Watt invented a steam engine, and it was more efficient than anyone's before. 
people predicted that coal use would go down because it's getting more output for the same amount of coal or less coal to do the same amount of output. Instead, coal use went up. Why did it go up? For each use of one engine, it dropped. But it became cheaper to use, so more people found more uses for more steam engines, which overall increased coal use. The place to look for is what's going to happen is not individual uses, like comparing one electric car to one gas car, but in this case, on the demand curve for what new uses innovators will find. Uber was predicted to lower congestion and miles driven, but increased both. LEDs are leading to lighting things that never needed lighting before and will likely overtake incandescent pollution overall. They certainly have increased light pollution overall. One helicopter drone pollutes a lot less than one helicopter with, you know, with a person in it, but there are tens of thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands by now, and they will likely, they're already likely polluting more than all helicopters used to. You may have heard about this, and you may, if you know terms like rebound effect or Jevons paradox, you've heard how economists think of this effect, but they aren't odd side effects or paradoxes. When you understand them, you see this is how the system works. It's not some side effect that maybe we can get rid of. This is a fundamental part of the system. Technology doesn't have a value. If you throw technology at a problem, it's not going to itself solve things. Technology is a tool that amplifies the values of the person wielding it. And if that person is acting within a system, it will amplify the values of a system. You can tell a system's values by its results. A system is perfectly designed to produce the results that it gets. Our system gets and therefore values growth at the cost of it pollutes a lot. Elon Musk's strategy is to sell more cars. That's a strategy of his, to sell more cars, which he wants to be electric. A sustainable strategy would be to sell fewer cars with a tactic that's within a tactic within the strategy of making the ones that we can't obviate the need for electric. So strategy, fewer cars. Tactic, make electric. Musk's strategy is more cars, not less cars. He has made a tactic, electric cars, a strategy. That tactic can work within a sustainable strategy, but no amount of unsustainable strategy can be made sustainable. How can we need fewer cars? Well, we can redesign cities. If you've been to Amsterdam, you may identify it as like a, a very bicycle-friendly city. And if you don't know better, and I didn't until very recently, well, it was uh, um, a medieval city that was for walking and bikes just were, it worked naturally there. On the contrary, it was flooded with cars in the 50s, 60s, and 70s. And cross-Bronx highway-like highways were proposed, including tearing down Amsterdam's core, that if you've visited Amsterdam, that's what you visited, probably. These plans were to bring giant highways in so it would turn Amsterdam into, I don't know, like Houston. Instead, people consciously and deliberately chose not to go in that direction and to, with trial and error and lots of techniques, make the city bicycle and pedestrian friendly so that even people who drive prefer that they can't really drive there. Their designs, the designs of Amsterdam and Holland are spreading and people prefer them. American cities like Houston went the opposite direction, but they could follow Amsterdam even now and go back to where fewer people need cars, where fewer people feel that people who, you know, a lot of people respond, oh, but Josh, you don't understand. Some people can't avoid it. Yes, if we change city design, we can make it so that we don't need cars. That would be the opposite of what Elon Musk is doing. Elon Musk is driving toward creating more roads. And systemically, every, it may be, it's actually, this is debatable. It may be that one electric vehicle pollutes less than one internal combustion engine vehicle. That's debatable, but let's say it does. Even if that does, selling more and more cars does not reduce the number of cars. It doesn't change cities so that we don't need cars.
In short, Elon Musk is lowering Earth's ability to sustain life. He is increasing pollution strategically. I don't know who Sam spends time with when he's not recording, but it sounds like he speaks to Silicon Valley types who promote technology without understanding systems and values, like modern-day James Watts, making something that they say, look, this is more efficient, and not realizing it's leading to more and more pollution. If you look at what nuclear and fusion, if it ever happens, do, they accelerate the system. They already require fossil fuels to build and operate. Well, fusion, if it ever does. Well, it's using a lot of fossil fuels now, so these things pollute a lot. But even if they didn't, imagine that you have fusion, and let's say all it did was fuse hydrogen into helium, and no pollution came out of it. It just gave you energy to do things. They would still, fusion would still accelerate all the pollution everywhere else in the system accelerating our problems. CO2 is only one problem. If you didn't produce any carbon dioxide, but we still made all the plastic and we still deforested and so forth, even if it only produced heat, which physics says you cannot avoid, and as we know, we can't get rid of the heat on our planet. It's, that's the greenhouse effect. It's not that we, we the heat, we can't let it get, get away. Exponential growth means that that heat will keep growing. That is to say, just fusion produces excess heat. You might say, well, not that much compared to the whole planet. I'll link to a recent paper in Science that quantifies it. But roughly, if you bring what generates power in the sun, fusion, into our atmosphere, sure, we'll get work from it in the short term, but we will also get heat too. We can't dissipate that heat. That's global warming. We're bringing what's warm in the globe from outside the Earth to the Earth's surface. We'll cook ourselves faster. And if you do the math, which the science article does, you'll see that with modest growth, how long does it take to heat up the earth to where it's unlivable? The order of a few human lifetimes. And that's at modest growth. Now you can say, well, we can stop growing. Then there's our solution. If we can stop growing in the future, I say that we should stop growing now. And if we can't now, it will be harder and would involve more suffering later if we got fusion and we've grown yet more. I'm only touching on this. But fission and fusion exacerbate the problems of waste. Even if it's just waste heat with modest levels of growth, that heat just runs away from us and we would seriously make the planet, we would warm the globe from within. Anyway, read the science article. And Sam agrees that we don't need all this technology. He has said to guests that people in the past had less technology but were just as happy and concluded that we can too compared to a future with more technology so we don't actually need more technology. It's nice to think in the way of anesthesia, for example, that will keep reducing some kinds of pain, but he knows that technology will never end suffering. It will always happen, and there are other ways to handle it. So we don't need to keep pursuing technology blindly. If we Now, I'm a big fan of technology, subject to our values of not polluting, and we can do that. So solutions that work regarding cars are city planning. There's a series called Not Just Bikes on YouTube, and I'll link to it. It's one of my favorite video channels, and I've had the host on my, on my podcast. This is a way to reduce car dependency in a way that improves life, not just making cars slightly less polluting. Solutions in technology in general, I highly recommend Low Tech Magazine. It's one of my favorite sites on the internet, and its tagline, We Love Technology, shows that you can love technology without loving pollution, and you can always progress, that is, make lives better, without harm, taking into account these side effects. The solution is not polluting a little bit less, which is to say not changing the system. The solution we need is to stop polluting. To quantify this a little bit, 
This is an informal study. I went to a supermarket to observe the items in at least 100 shoppers' carts at the checkout. Every single item in every cart was packaged. Even fresh produce that was stacked without packaging, at least in the 100 cases that I saw and then more, they put them in plastic bags. And that's on top of actually every item, as far as I could tell, had stickers that the suppliers put on each piece. And I'm sure that some shoppers buy without putting plastic or without putting the produce in the plastic bags, but all the ones that I saw did. We have created a culture where the absolute basics of life require hurting people. Plastic hurts people. I hope I don't have to make this connection for you, but if you buy plastic, whether you wanted to or not, whether you meant to or not, if you drive that system that produces plastic, some of your money is going to create more plastic, which is going to hurt people, I should say wildlife as well. It bears repeating. We've created a culture where the absolute basics of life require hurting other people. If you think that you can put plastic out in the environment without hurting people, you're dreaming. I hope that connection is pretty clear because I hear from some people it's not that clear. But think about it. If simply living, we've created a culture where simply living requires hurting other people. If every day 330 million Americans and billions of people around the world simply to live, to eat, must pollute several times a day, what amount of pollution per person won't lower Earth's ability to sustain life. If every time you eat, you are lowering Earth's ability to sustain life. Remember, plastic pollution poisons for at least five centuries. On top of the people and the wildlife displaced or killed in the extraction, the pollution and the making of the stuff, and all the poisonous chemicals created and released in the process, I think you have to conclude that if we pollute with every meal, and increasingly with every sip of liquid, because people buy so much disposable water, or water in disposable bottles, I think you have to conclude that the only amount of pollution that can allow Earth to sustain human life in the long term is zero, as best I can tell. Not a little bit less than usual, nor a lot less, but zero. Does that sound impossible? A lot of people say they can't even imagine that, but that's how humans lived for hundreds of thousands of years. It's tempting to say, but they were diseased and miserable and they were lucky to live past 30, but that's the addiction speaking. History and anthropology show that we evolved to live a modal lifetime, I can link to this paper, of 72 years. 30 being old age was a short blip of, on an evolutionary time scale caused not by nature, but by human society. Our ancestors far enough back, I mean, think pre-agriculture, they lived a lot longer. I've been asking people since this informal study of going to the supermarket if they can imagine a world without pollution. Almost none can. They really can't imagine a world without pollution. With so many people today unable to imagine a world without pollution that actually existed, the world that nearly all of our ancestors inhabited for hundreds of thousands of years with no pollution, yet thrived enough to populate the entire planet without even the wheel. I've come to describe our unsustainable culture as a failure of imagination and a failure of leadership. Of course those things did happen. If we can't imagine it, that's a failure of our imagination. Of those who can imagine a world without pollution, though, many of them imagine it like a Mad Max-type dystopia after civilization has broken down. So to suggest polluting less to someone whose vision of no pollution is a hellish dystopia, they will hear you suggesting making life worse. They will resist, based on their false beliefs from their addiction to what pollution brings, they'll think you're suggesting making life worse. And if you could convince or cajole or coerce or seek compliance, telling people to do it or force them to do it, that will tend to reinforce their beliefs that they don't want to do it. Addiction leads them to believe that less pollution means reverting to the Stone Age. It means mothers dying in childbirth, children dying in childbirth, 30 being old age, every cut resulting in infection and death. That's not what actually happened. If we can't imagine it, that's a problem of our imagination.
it did happen. And that's one of the big things I'm trying to do is change people to help people see, at least imagine what actually did happen. Now, Sam knows that it's difficult to dislodge the culture. In his case, to dislodge people from feeling like free will exists. People refuse to see or consider otherwise. And I can hear some frustration in him on that. I think I do. Likewise, a culture that sees nature as dangerous and believes that we need technology to pacify it, it's hard to displace. But again, Homo sapiens lived for 300,000 years without the wheel and still populated the globe. What more do we need to see that nature is abundant, safe, and healthy? We created stories otherwise to justify and rationalize civilization destroying nature. On an individual level, we can rationalize and justify why we do things. We can do that as a culture as well. So we have these stories that say nature is dangerous when it's not. In contradiction to the people who promote technology, in contradiction to their belief that we must, we must work hard and fast to escape nature's danger, I submit to you there exists the sloth, an animal so opposite to working hard nonstop that we call it the sloth. It turns out that the modern species of sloths diverged from their branches tens of millions of years ago. So for tens of millions of years, they hung around doing slothful things. About 10,000 years ago, though, coincidentally, when humans reached their territories, their populations decreased, with some species going extinct. So in some cases, it seems that nature nurtures and is full of abundance, while human culture is dangerous. At least we can say that we don't have to push on the gas when we have a safe, supportive evolutionary niche. If we want to progress, humans are plenty ingenious without polluting. I'm not saying no to technology, the exact opposite. I favor technology in a system or culture that values do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Leave it better than you found it. Live and let live, which regarding how we affect each other through the environment, our culture has abandoned. Our culture has abandoned with regard to the environment, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. It has abandoned with regard to the environment, leave it better than you found it. It has abandoned with regard to the environment, live and let live. Now, individuals and some organizations may still abide by those values, but as a culture, we do not. One last bit about the environment, connecting with one of Sam's favorite topics, psychedelics. This topic can also reveal another huge value to preserving wildlife and nature beyond the tech optimism that he's been sold on. On my podcast and sustainability leadership training, I ask people what the environment means to them. I ask them to describe their personal experience of nature. Nearly everyone across the board, nearly everyone's first answer is about the disasters, the catastrophes, and the predictions of more that they learn about from the news. But that's not their experience of nature. That's their experience of reading or watching the news. When I guide them to re-experience, to think of their actual experiences in nature, they quickly find very personal experiences that are deeply meaningful, often coming from their childhood, but even if decades ago, meaningful until today. I mean, in the moment, still meaningful. The experiences might be one-time events like seeing a particular sunset or the Grand Canyon for the first time. But more often, they're multiple-time events like regular visits to the forests, picking apples with their grandmother to bake pies every fall, or spending time on the beach. Usually, they're in solitude, but sometimes these experiences are with people. And when I ask people to name emotions that they feel in such times, they often describe oneness, connecting with everything, humility, their place in the universe, calm, wonder, awe, and emotions like those. They describe them as deeply valuable, life lessons. Sam had a guest, Roland Griffiths, I think from Johns Hopkins, who studies psychedelics. He talked about some study where they asked people who took mushrooms, uh, psychedelic mushrooms, to describe their experiences. Roland was impressed with how positive and valuable people described those experiences, often as one of their top experiences, on par with having a child. 
their descriptions are remarkably similar to people's experiences of nature. The descriptions Roland talked about were remarkably similar to what I hear when people describe their experiences of nature, but it's just nature. There's no side effects. There's no drugs. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with drugs and side effects, but see, on the one hand, if they take mushrooms, they'll experience things more intensely. Uh, Sam always says, you will definitely know that something's happening. But experiences with nature can happen all the time. There's no risk. There's no side effects. It costs nothing and can give us as much value. Why don't we value experiences in nature as much? Why doesn't Sam? I think because until living memory, nearly everyone lived within walking distance of solitude in nature, maybe walking among trees, watching waves lap up on the shore, hearing birds and frogs or whatever wildlife was around, not hearing the noise of honking. And believe it or not, I'm reading from notes. And when I wrote the word honking, a car honked as I typed that word. You know, in nature, you don't hear tires on pavement, speakers blaring and so on. And as valuable as, as trees lining sidewalks and riverfronts and cities, they are not wild nature. They are not solitude. They don't give the mental, well, they can if you really focus on it. But it's not automatic that they give the mental and physical results that being out of nature does. We've told ourselves that nature is dangerous and we need to tame or overcome it, ignoring that our ancestors lived as homo sapiens for 300,000 years abundantly with it, populating the planet, showing it's abundant and safe, despite the fears that we in ignorance have taught ourselves, perhaps to justify paving it over. We don't know what we're missing. Psychedelics, I believe, are like a remedial jolt to restore what used to come automatically to everyone, not in every moment all the time, but was available to all the time. I suggest that most of the benefits that Sam sees in psychedelics, for example, that you can't miss that something will happen, are not only available in and from nature, they were automatic for most of our species' existence for everyone. Again, we don't know what we're missing, so we might think that amusement parks or even national parks that are often effectively curated experiences, you know, they remotely resemble solitude in nature, and not knowing what we're missing, we don't know what we're missing, so we don't know that it could be automatic all the time, and so we go for things like psychedelics. I'm not saying anything wrong with psychedelics, but I think it's automatic. And if he recognized, Sam recognized, what we're losing, what we're giving up, even much of the value we can get from meditation, that can come automatically spending time in nature. You can't help but contemplate when you're in nature. You don't get it driving through nature or at a tourist destination filled with people or where cars on roads make noises that are greater than the flora or fauna or just the wind going through the trees or on the beach. I don't know the details about Sam's time in Tibet or wherever, but I know he refers to going in nature on psychedelics. I suspect he'd agree on the value of restoring and rewilding nature as a way to restore what meditation brings and that paving it over or reducing it contributes more than he thought to the problems of isolation, anger, reactivity without reflection, all these things that he sees in our culture growing. And he talks about, I mean, he usually talks about in the context of, of Trump or Twitter, but just losing nature. Well, let's put it the other way. Restoring nature would give us back some of those things that meditation will bring, psychedelics can bring, but also we could, if we hadn't lost so much of access to just walking among the trees. I mean, billions of people live in slums around the world that have no access to those things probably their entire lives. Ah, he should be a guest on my podcast or he should invite me on his. He mostly invites authors and my next book on sustainability leadership isn't out yet, but he and his audience would still benefit more than from many of his guests, I think, from hearing my stuff, than from many of his guests. But that's another topic. I hope that I helped with explaining and making more accessible terms like non-dual, mindfulness, arising and passing away, things like that, so that if you do meditate, it will help your meditation. If you don't, 
Uh, maybe get you started.